Welcome to the Hollywood Renaissance Limited Podcast Series with Rita Award winner and Wall Street Journal best-selling author Kennedy Ryan. This bonus episode gives you a glimpse into the first three chapters of Kennedy Ryan's latest release, Real, out today. Real is a Hollywood tale of wild ambition, artistic obsession, and unrelenting love. Chapter 1. Canon. Present Day. I blink when the lights come up in the Walter Reed Theater, brightness assaulting my eyes after nearly two hours spent sitting in the dark. The packed room seems to draw a collective breath and then release it as thunderous applause. And then they stand. I'm sure some folks stay seated, but I only see a room full of people standing, clapping for the documentary I poured the last three years of my life into. Warmth crawls up my neck and over my face. I will myself not to squirm in the director's chair, set center stage. It's not my first time screening a documentary at the New York Film Festival, but I'll never get used to the attention. I'm much more at home behind the camera than in front of an audience. I'm like Mama in that way. I hope I'm like her in a thousand ways. Charles, the moderator, clears his throat and shoots me a grin, mouthing, I told you so. I roll my eyes and concede his point with a dip of my head and a wry smile. He predicted a standing ovation for Cracked, my documentary examining America's war on drugs, mandatory minimums, and mass incarceration, and contrasting the current, largely suburban, opioid crisis. My usual lighthearted fare. I gesture for everyone to sit, and for a few seconds they ignore me, until in small waves they take their seats. I think they liked it, Charles says into his handheld mic, causing a ripple of laughter through the theater. Maybe. I look out to the crowd. But I'm sure they have questions. Do they ever? For the next hour... The questions come in a quick succession of unrelenting curiosity and, mostly, admiration. A few challenge my largely critical stance of the government's so-called war on drugs. I'm not sure if they're merely playing devil's advocate or actually believe the points they raise. Doesn't matter. I enjoy a good debate and don't mind having it with 300 people watching. It's a great chance to further clarify my points, my beliefs, and maybe learn something in the process. We aren't usually 100% right or informed on anything. Even if I don't agree with someone, I never discount the opportunity to learn something I hadn't considered. When I'm sure we've exhausted this discussion and I can start thinking about the mouth-watering steak I've promised myself, another person approaches the mic set up in the aisle. One last question, Charles says, pointing to the freckled guy with red hair who's sporting a biggie t-shirt. I'm a huge fan of your work, Mr. Holt, he begins, his blue eyes fixed and intense. Thanks. I ignore my stomach's protest. Appreciate that. As much as I love your documentaries, he continues, I miss your feature films. Do the experience with Primal put you off directing movies? Shit. I do not talk about that disaster, 
It's been discussed enough without me ever addressing it publicly. Everyone knows not to ask me about that movie. And this little joker has the balls to ask me now? After a standing ovation at the New York Film Festival for the hardest documentary I've ever made? Some stories should be told by other people, I say, keeping my tone flat and shrugging philosophically. You find the stories you're supposed to tell and move on if it becomes clear a story is not for you. It's not personal. So I think that does it, Charles says. Thank you all for, but it was personal. Redhead cuts in over Charles's attempt to shut him down, pressing on despite the color flushing his cheeks. I mean, you were dating Camille Hensley, and when you guys broke up, she had you fired from the movie. Does it get more personal? Do you have advice for us young filmmakers who might find ourselves in similar awkward situations? Yeah, don't fuck your actress. I don't say that out loud, of course, though it is the lesson I learned the hard, humiliating way. I guess the lesson is that art takes precedence over everything. I force an even tone. That story turned out exactly as it was supposed to, trash, and performed the way it was supposed to, flopped, without me. I think we all know personal involvements can complicate what is already the hardest thing I've ever done. Make great movies, whether they're true stories of lives ruined by a government's ill-conceived policies. I gesture to the large screen with the cracked logo behind me. Or stories born purely from imagination. Storytelling is sacred. Story must be protected at all costs. Sometimes at personal cost. So when it became apparent my involvement with that project could potentially compromise the story. I bowed out. Railroaded is a more accurate description for how Camille leveraged her megastar status to get me off the project. The movie being butchered by the new director and the rotten tomatoes hurled at the film did little to soothe that wound. I didn't need the movie's failure to vindicate me. I knew I should not have mixed it up with Camille. Not even great pussy is worth the wasted opportunity. But it's hard to call anything wasted when you learn your lesson this well. You look like you were two seconds off Jack and Redhead up. Monk's comment makes me grin. But I'm too focused on my crab cake to speak. After all that craving for steak, P.J. Clark's crab cake turned me. I mean, it did take balls to ask. Monk winks and takes a bite of his steak. Punk ass is lucky he still got him. I wipe my mouth and toss the napkin onto the table. He's gotta know I don't talk about that shit. You've barely talked to me about Primal, much less a room full of strangers. So I thought you not strangling him on the spot was damn near commendable. <laughs> I offer a grunt in case Monk gets it in his head that I want to discuss this further. I do not. Primal is a sore spot. I've built my career and reputation on thoughtful, groundbreaking documentaries. When I direct features, it's because the material grips my imagination and incites my convictions. Primal is a reminder that I strayed from that once and paid in pride. I wasn't lying up there. 
Storytelling is sacred to me. Jeopardizing my integrity as a storyteller for a woman? Won't happen again. I get the message, Monk says, taking a sip of his beer. You don't want to talk about Primal. So let's talk about your next movie. I know you're into that. I glance up from my plate and nod. I believe in economy of words. Talking too much usually means saying things I didn't want to or shouldn't have. I've got a million ideas about the score, he continues, not waiting for me to speak. Right, Monk Bellamy is one of the best musicians I've ever met. He plays several instruments, but piano is what he's best known for. His obsession with the Thelonious Monk gained him the moniker, and his towering skill as a pianist backs it up. He's that rare classically trained beast who can seamlessly cross into pop, contemporary, jazz. You name the genre, he can probably hang. So you are free to work on the movie. I take a sip of my Macallan. I didn't realize how anxious I was about the documentary's reception until that standing O. Most of the tension drained out of me after that. This drink is handling what's left. I can shuffle a few things. Monk's dark eyes twinkle with humor. For the right price. He's as intense as I am, but he disguises it with a laid-back persona and good-natured smile. I don't care enough to disguise anything. You get what you get. <laughs> we got budget. I mutter, this time. I hope I don't regret letting Evan convince me to do this with Galaxy Studios. A superior piece, and a huge one at that. Considering the costuming, production, scope of this thing, it ain't gonna be cheap. Evan was right to go the studio route. I'm sure he'll be pleased to hear it. Though if there's one thing you never have to tell Evan, it's that he's right. My production partner, Evan Bancroft, deserves a lot of credit for our success. He indulges me my documentaries and makes the films between count, ensuring the movies we do make us a lot of money. The guy's too smart to be poor. Not that he's ever been. Evan grew up in the business with a screenwriter for a mother and a cinematographer for a father. He bleeds film. Still no closer to finding your star. Monk asks. I put the drink down and lean back in my chair, watching Lincoln Center glow through the window as the first layer of darkness blankets the city. Finding a great story is only the first hurdle. Getting the money to make it? That's another. Casting the right actors? One of the most important steps in the dozens you take to make or ruin a film. I know her when I see her, I tell him. How many have you seen so far? A hundred. The studio put out this huge casting call that's been a joke. I like to be a lot more precise than this. It's a waste of time and money if you ask me, but they didn't. They just started looking at all these actresses who are totally wrong for the role. Well, in their defense, you have been searching for six months without one callback, so they're probably just trying to help this baby along. But it's my baby. I glare at the passersby on the street, like they're the suits safely ensconced in their Beverly Hills homes. 
I found this story in the middle of nowhere. They have no idea what it will take to make it what it should be. All I want is their money, not their ideas. Silly them, thinking they should have some say about how their money is spent. I've been doing this a long time. I know how it works, but there are some things I know only with my gut. And casting this movie is one of those things. So I need the studio execs to stay the hell out of my way while I find the right actress. It's still kind of a miracle how you got Desi Blue. Like once in a lifetime. I'd been traveling from one interview for Cracked to another. Driving through a rural Alabama town, I almost missed the small roadside marker. Birthplace of Desi Blue, 1915 to 2005. Driving, I didn't have time to read all the fine print beneath the heading that told more about her life, but the gas station in the tiny town where I stopped was on Desi Blue Drive. Inside, I asked the cashier about Desi Blue, and the rest is history. That sent me on the winding road that has brought me to the most ambitious movie I've ever attempted, a biopic about the life story of a hugely talented jazz singer most have never heard of and never knew. Darren's writing the script. Monk's question jars me from that pivotal memory. Uh, actually, no. I really think this story should be written by a woman. I pause, leaving plenty of room for the bomb I'm about to drop. I want Verity Hill. Monk's knife stops mid-slice into his medium-rare steak. He looks up, blinking at me a few times. His knife and fork clatter when he drops them on his plate. A muscle works in his jaw. Look, I know you two have a past, I say. He answers with scornful laughter and sits back in his chair, making no move to return to his steak. You don't know shit about our past he says, his voice even, but his usual good humor absent. I know you dated in college, and don't speculate, Cannon. I mean, she didn't say it would be a problem for her, so I assume you'd be. You already asked her. Before you asked me. Sorry, bruh. But the studio was more interested in who would write the script than who'd do the music. She's in high demand since she won the Golden Globe. Yeah, I get it. I needed to nail her down, get her attached as early as possible. I said, I get it. Monk's words are diced up into tiny pieces, but it sounds like he's choking on them. She's fine? I'm fine. Yeah, she didn't seem to have a problem with you. She shouldn't he mutters under his breath, but loud enough for me to hear it. So it was a bad breakup. It was college. Monk picks up his fork and knife, slices into the tender pink meat. We grown, and we're professionals. Make sure, because I don't like personal shit messing up my movies. Oh, you mean like Camille and Primal? He says with a sudden evil grin. Man, if you don't, okay, okay. 
He puts up both hands in surrender. You drop Verity, and I won't mention Camille. Pat. I flick my chin up and lift my empty glass so our server can see I need a refill. We got our studio, our writer, our music. Now if I can just find Desi. I don't want to cast the guy until I know who Desi will be. I need to see who she'll have chemistry with. Makes sense, Monk says distractedly, looking down at the phone by his plate. Oh, damn. Good for her. Good for who? What's up? A few weeks ago, an old friend begged me to step into this gig for him in the village. He picks up the phone, smiling. His wife went into labor, and he didn't want to leave the band hanging. So he asked you? I blow out an impressed breath. Must go way back. Monk's a big deal. Asking him to sub at a local gig is like bringing in LeBron for a pickup game on the playground. It was fun. Whatever. Monk shrugs and smirks. So there's this chick singing with the band that night, and she was phenomenal. Sick with it, like star-written all over her. It's only a matter of time with this one. What's her name? Oh, you never heard of her. Neva Saint. I started following her on Instagram after that gig. Anyway, she just posted that she's in that Broadway play Splendor. She's an understudy, and apparently the lead actress is on vacation, so she's stepping in tonight for the first time. He glances at his watch and then to me. What you got going on? You want to catch a show? You think we can get tickets day of? With such short notice? He gives me a, do you know who I am look? Bruh, I always got a hook up. I was going to look at first passes Verity sent over of the script. Screw that. We're in New York, come on. You work too hard. Look who's talking. Yeah, but I play hard, too. Extract the stick from your ass, at least for tonight. Wow. You really know how to charm a guy. Bruh, we way past charm. I'm dragging you down to this show. I stare glumly into my empty glass. Oh, hell. Oh, hell, my ass. He signals to the server, who never made it over with my refill. Check, please. Chapter 2. Neva. Calling to wish you luck tonight, Neva. Sorry I can't be there. Listening to my mother's voicemail, I hear the regret in her voice, but it doesn't lessen my disappointment that she's not here. I had surgery, and you know my knee ain't been right ever since. She goes on. Traveling that long on a bus would be hard. Anyway, I'm so proud of you. We all are. I love you. She doesn't fly. I'm only in the role for a week. She has obligations at home. I rehearse the litany of reasons my mother cannot be here when I need her like I have many times over the last decade, like I did my first semester in college and when I was struggling after graduation. I toured with a play once, 
and we did a show in Charlotte. It was a small role, but Mama came. She beamed with pride over the couple of lines I had on stage for only a few minutes. How would she feel tonight, seeing me on Broadway as the star of the show? You got this? My hairstylist and best friend, Takira, says, jarring me from my thoughts and bringing me back to the dressing room as I prepare to go on. Her words echo the mantra I've been chanting internally ever since I found out I'd be stepping in for the lead actress tonight. I've actually known for a few weeks because her vacation was planned, but this is the first night I'm actually doing it. On Broadway. Stomach in knots. Possibly vomiting. I'm gonna ruin this costume with these big old sweat circles. I laugh and lift my arms. My nerves. Oh my God, I just want to get this over with. Takira sticks another pin in to secure the long wig I'm wearing for the part. I repeat. She catches my eyes in the mirror, resting her chin in the crook of my neck and squeezing my shoulders. You got this. Truth be told, I thought Elise would never go on vacation because she knows her understudy can sing her out of the water and act her under the table. She didn't want folks seeing how good her backup actually is. She winks at me. But tonight they will. Will they? I don't care if anyone thinks I'm better than the principal. I like Elise. She's truly talented. I just want to get through this and not embarrass the director or let down the cast. Or disappoint the people who paid to see Elise. I'll be right back, Takira says. I'm going to go grab you some of that tea they had in the green room. The walls of Elise's dressing room seem to clamp around me like jaws. While she's on vacation, I get to borrow hers, but the one I share with three other understudies is a glorified broom closet four flights up. This much larger room is tastefully decorated with gorgeous rugs, plush furniture, and abstract paintings gracing the walls. Plenty of space for my doubts and fears to make themselves comfortable. A few minutes later, there's a knock at the door. The understudies cluster in the hallway, their eyes lit with excitement. Good luck out there, Janie gushes. There's nothing like it. She's been on before. As Swing, she understudies for several actors, so her chances of getting on stage are greater than mine. You guys, I say, I'm so nervous. You're gonna be amazing, Beth reassures. They crowd around me with their top knots and varying shades of leotard and sweatpants, squeezing me. I slump into their arms, finding solidarity and a few seconds of borrowed confidence in their tight grip. Half an hour, ladies and gents. The stage manager's disembodied voice reminds us through the intercom system. My heartbeat seems to triple. Okay, almost time. Let's get out of here, girls, Janie tells the other two understudies. 
It's your night, Beth says. Show them what you got. Thanks. I offer the three of them a smile and wave when they file out of the dressing room. I'm left with my reflection in the mirror and the waiting quiet. I do a few deep breathing exercises, some vocal warm-ups. None of my routines seem to quell the anxiety blossoming in my chest. Takira opens the door, startling me as she enters carrying a steaming mug. Here you go. She reaches in her bag and pulls out a bottle of water. Room temperature. Wasn't sure which you'd prefer, so I brought both. Thanks. I'm mentally rehearsing the monologue from the final act, barely paying attention. Let me check your hair one more time and then I'll leave you alone. Takira comes over and adjusts a few hairpins. Your scalp looks good, by the way. That does get my attention. I turn to search her face. My hair has been an issue. After showing up for a few gigs and finding no one on set who knew what to do with black hair, I started making sure I was prepared to do it myself. I found Takira, who has taken care of it recently and helped keep it healthy. I could have handled it tonight, but having her meant one less thing to worry about. And Takira's my girl. With so much distance between my family and me, not just the miles separating North Carolina from New York, but the chasm yawning between our hearts, I've collected a few good friends through the years. I've needed them. There was a time when I couldn't imagine a night like this without Mama and Terry. And now, it's hard to see them in any part of my life. Hard for me to imagine fitting into theirs, especially Terry's. I have a niece, Kiana, I barely know and can hardly bring myself to look at because each time I do, I see them. Stop it, I tell the girl in the mirror with the heavy stage makeup and the silky wig spilling down her back. The past is shit, the future is uncertain, all you have is now. That's what you always say, Takira laughs her wide white smile contrasting with her flawless brown skin. I literally forgot you were there. I chuckle, allowing amusement to pierce my nervousness for at least one moment. Well, I'm getting out of your hair, so to speak. She picks up her bag, stuffed with supplies from the floor, and pats her cap of natural curls. I'll be watching from the balcony. You're coming to dinner after, right? I think some of us are heading to Glass House Tavern. Sounds good. I'll meet you back here, she grins. I want to see you signing all the autographs at the stage door. <sighs> I swallow the anxiety inching up my throat. I doubt it. This role has never been played by a black woman. Takira's smile fades and her look grows more intent. Understudy or not, Tonight's a big deal, not just for you, but for the little girls out there who need to see us on stage. Tonight's not just your night, it's all of ours. I huff out a laugh and rub the back of my neck. No pressure, huh? Girl, 
You were born for pressure. She leans in to lay a kiss on my cheek. I catch and hold her hand, hold her stare. Thanks, T, for everything. You know I got you. Fifteen minutes comes over the intercom. Sweat sprouts around my hairline, and my breath stutters. Bye, Takira says, and slips from the dressing room. And then it's just me, sitting with a cup of tea, room temperature water, and all the possible ways I could screw this up. The faint buzz of preparation beyond my door sifts into the silence. The bees working in the hive backstage while the patrons wait, bellies full from a pre-show dinner or relaxed after a drink or two. I watch theater on an empty stomach and completely sober. I don't want a thing dulling my senses or making me slow. There could be something I miss. I consume a show like a starved animal, like a tremoring addict chasing a high. Hard to believe I thought I wanted a different life, when now this, performing, is everything to me. Since graduating from Rutgers, I've done regional tours, some commercials, done swing for a couple of smaller shows, but this is my first time stepping onto a Broadway stage. In the years since that awful day with Terry and Brandon, I've learned a lot about myself. My view of the world, of what was possible, was so limited then. It's like I was looking at life with one eye open. I might have stayed in my small town, done community theater, married Brandon, and been content with two or three kids, maybe taught drama at our local high school. That is a path my life could have taken, and I might have been fine. They ran me from that life, though, Terry and Brandon. They kicked me out of the nest and sent me soaring. On some level, I'm grateful things happened the way they did. But most times when I think of them, it's hard to find goodwill. And as much as I hate to admit it, grace has been scarce. A wound left untended festers. And that's what's happened with my family. Five minutes, the stage manager intones over the intercom. I close my eyes, blocking out old hurts and moldy memories, even cutting off the roads my mind would take to the future. And what doing well tonight, this week while Elise is on vacation, could mean for my career. I whittle my thoughts down to one thing. Splendor. This play, this character, this performance, this moment. I've been in the wings, backstage every night for months, always prepared, but never put on. Every line and lyric lives in my pores now, runs through my veins. I want to give myself to that stage tonight. I want to pour out every emotion this story demands. Theater has the power to transform, to transport. For every person waiting for curtains to rise, this story 
is the vehicle to escape the mundane, the grind, the pressures life imposes on us. I know because I feel those same pressures. I feel the weight of life, and I want to be lifted as badly as they do. For someone tonight, I'm the getaway. And just like that, my perspective shifts, and it's not about the tightness in my chest or the shortness of breath or the sweat running down my back. It's not about my fear of what could go wrong for me. It's about what I can do for them. What we can create together tonight. I stare at the same girl in the mirror, but now in her eyes, there's a mingling of peace and fire. Places, everyone, the stage manager urges. Places! Chapter 3 Canon I prefer film. I like months to mold a story into my preferred shape, to manipulate with light, or reconstruct with editing. I like takes, a few chances for my actors to find their best. I like time. Theater is immediate. With a movie, I'm bringing something to life. With theater, it's breathing on me. It's already alive. I know it takes months, sometimes years, bringing a work to the Broadway stage, so I respect the process and appreciate its rigors. But the experience is very different from film. And I prefer film. But from the moment she steps on stage, this understudy, something kindles inside of me. At first, it's merely a flicker of recognition, not that I know her or have seen her before, I recognize this feeling of finding something unexpected and exceptional. Discovery. After a while, beauty blurs. In my business, you've seen one pretty face. So, for me, a well-constructed face doesn't necessarily hold my attention the way it did when I was younger. Surgeons can construct a great face. Beauty can be bought. This, what she has, what she does, is not about beauty. She's attractive, I guess. Even under the thick layer of stage makeup and the wig and the costume, there's an arresting quality to her. I mentally strip every performer when I meet them. Remove the makeup, costume, whatever identity they've assumed, to examine what lies beneath. The bones under the skin, the soul under the flesh. It's a knee-jerk response after years of casting for movies. I automatically disassemble them into their smallest parts. Even when I'm not working with an actor, I assess them to see what's there for me to use. There's so much here. If she were a room, all the windows and doors would be flung open. There is an unboundedness to her, even as she exhibits the restraint of craft. She's obviously well-trained and disciplined, but her spirit gallops like a horse given its head, lengthening the reins until it runs wild. 
Her face tells the story before she delivers one line. She's badularescent. The glow of a stone that comes from beneath the surface, like all the brightest parts of her aren't available to the naked eye. And on stage, she brings it out for the audience to see. For much of the play, she interacts with other characters, but near the middle, the stage clears until she stands alone in the spotlight. The stage is vast, and she seems so small, it could easily swallow her, but it doesn't. She commands the space, and when she reaches the pivotal monologue, anyone else on stage would only be in her way. Splendor. There's splendor in our kisses, and awe in every breath when you touch me just like that, just like that right there. The world stops beneath your fingers. I shiver. I crumble. Your caress leaves me boneless, weightless, one glance from you. The sun stands still in my chest, high noon, high rise, high on you. My field of poppies, my field of dreams, my splendor in the grass. Splendor, 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 chase me, catch me, wrap me in your fantasies, feed me from the storehouse of your love. Let's sustain each other. Let's enjoy each other. Let's find forever. Each and every eternity. I'll trade my heart for yours. And we will be splendor. You and me. She and I are not alone in the theater. I know hundreds of people around me hear her words too, but somehow it feels like she delivers the words to me, to only me. I wonder if everyone listening feels that way too. That's the alchemy of this actress. She reaches you. With an audience this large, she makes it personal. In a story that is pretend, she makes it feel true. And in a moment when I wasn't looking, I found exactly what I was looking for. Thanks for listening to the Hollywood Renaissance limited podcast series with Kennedy Ryan. Audiobook excerpt narrated by Ebony Flowers as Neva and Jacoby Diem as Canon. Produced by Keisha Menefee and Olivia Stibbe. Thanks again.